It's easy to look at American politics now and find individuals for whom loyalty to party or an individual leader is the only thing that matters. But today's guest tells us of another time when service to the nation was the highest service in public life. He's historian Richard Aldous this week on Story in the Public Square. And welcome to A Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller, also with Salve's Pell Center. And our guest this week is Richard Eldis, the Eugene Meyer Professor of British History and Culture at Bard College. He's also the author of a new book, The Dillon Era, Douglas Dillon in the Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson administrations. He joins us today from New York. Richard, thank you so much for being with us. Jim, thanks so much for having me. You know, I, I, I told you uh, before we started taping here today that uh, I was thrilled by this book. Uh, I also felt woefully unprepared as a historian who's actually written about the Eisenhower era that I didn't know more about Douglas Dillon. Uh, for folks at home who are maybe as in the dark as I was, uh, could you tell us just briefly, who was Douglas Dillon and why is he important? So Douglas Dillon was the Treasury Secretary in the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, but crucially, he was also an important figure in the Eisenhower administration because he was actually a Republican. Um, so he's one of those figures who serves in, in a Republican and Democratic administration, somebody who I think we can agree would be quite rare today. Um, his great achievements are, as Treasury Secretary, uh, he introduces what were then the biggest tax cuts uh, in American history. Uh, and in the Eisenhower administration, uh, he's important because he develops a whole new way of thinking about economic foreign policy. So he's a really serious figure, but exactly as you say, he's one of those characters who's somewhat, if not forgotten, then underappreciated, um, and perhaps somebody who's who uh, is has not been seen as being at the center of things as he was seen at the time. Well, and we're gonna dive into some of those specific uh, examples in just a moment, but do you have a sense now, having written this book about him, why has he been overlooked uh, by historians and by just sort of the popular understanding of that of those eras? I think it's a couple of things, to be honest with you. I mean, first of all, he is a very uh, discreet, low-key kind of character. Um, that's in, in some ways, that's part of his conservatism, that uh, he's somebody who eschews the kind of display and push, pushing himself forward and brashness. But I think there are other reasons as well. Um, partly, it's because so much about the Kennedy administration, uh, and even to some degree, the Eisenhower administration, just gets swept aside by the assassination uh, of President Kennedy in 1963, the whole myth of Camelot, then uh, what uh, historians, some historians have called the dark side of Camelot. Uh, and then, of course, his successor, Kennedy's successor as well, those issues around Vietnam uh, and civil rights. So a lot of the important work uh, that was done before then uh, tended to just get swept away in the avalanche of those really major events. 
So let's go back to the before then and, and uh, to, to 1953, very early, of course, in the Eisenhower administration and just eight years since the end of the Second World War. Um, Dylan goes to Paris. He's the U.S. ambassador. What were the issues facing the, the Franco-U.S. relationship at that time, eight years after the end of the war? Yeah, I think it's worth saying as well that uh, when Dylan goes to Paris, he really is a neophyte in terms of politics. He's got this job primarily because his father, uh, who was one of the richest men in the United States, um, uh, had had uh, been a major donor uh, to Eisenhower. So he goes to Paris as someone who's not really very experienced in politics at a time, as you as your question points out, uh, when uh, Anglo-French, uh, when American-French relations were really at a, really at a very difficult period that there were arguments about defense, there was the uh, the economic relationship. There's also a cultural element to this that uh, I think that France, uh, going through a very difficult time politically, really feels a certain resentment about what it sees as the kind of heavy-handed attitude uh, that the Americans have in the way that they deal with the French. So part of Dylan's job uh, is to try and smooth over relations, to try to facilitate a much closer relationship between uh, the two countries. So you describe him uh, as a neophyte at that time, and that, of course, is a correct description. Do you have any sense of how he assumed that job? What was going through his head? Was he nervous? Was he thinking, I might fail? I got this job because of dad. Any sense of that? I don't know if you were able to talk to, to people who knew him at that time, and, and it's always hard to get into someone's head, but it, it must have been frightening on some level, I'm guessing, right? Well, yeah, I was I was lucky enough to be able to speak to his uh, two daughters, and I had access to the Dylan private papers uh, when I was working on this book. And there's a there's an odd combination that Dylan has. That on the one hand, there is this kind of Olympian quality that he has as someone uh, who's grown up in a very privileged background, Groton and Harvard, uh, as as his uh, education, um, then on to Wall Street. So he has this self-confidence about himself, but also accompanying that is this kind of nervousness to his character. So you're you're right that uh, on the one hand, he kind of, he goes and he, he's very earnest in the way that he approaches it. He's very hardworking. Uh, he's somebody who really puts in the hours. This is, although, although this is a political appointment by Eisenhower, uh, he's kind of somebody who has the kind of work ethic uh, that you would expect uh, of a career diplomat. So I think that's how he squares that particular that particular circle. Yeah, and just the the sheer number and complexity of the issues that he confronted as ambassador in Paris. This is the era of the fall of Jem Bien Phu, uh, the rise of a European defense community. Uh, you've got the the war in Algiers. Um, and, and not least of which certainly is the Suez Canal crisis, all right? And one of the things that I really appreciated about your telling of this history is that there were mistakes that Douglas Dillon made as an ambassador, as a secretary of the treasury, uh, in his various roles in Washington that you don't shy away from. And one of those came around the, the crisis diplomacy around the Suez Canal crisis. 
What was the gaffe that Dylan made, and how did he react to it? Yeah, you're right that he has this he has this element of some doing some things very well and then making some really rookie errors. Uh, and the Suez Canal uh, crisis is one of those. Uh, effectively, a junior member uh, of the French government uh, takes Dylan out to lunch shortly before uh, the Suez crisis and and says to him, in effect, look, we know there's a there's a presidential election coming up in the United States. France, we're not going to do anything in terms of Egypt and NASA and the nationalization of the Suez Canal. Um, and and he's, he completely fools him because Dylan uh, passes this um, information back uh, to uh, Washington. Uh, and then, you know, literally within a week, uh, the French and the British and the Israeli uh, governments um, uh, coordinate uh, and go in uh, to uh, the, uh, into Egypt to try to retake the Suez Canal. Of course, uh, it that proves to be a huge misstep uh, for all, all of those governments because Eisenhower uh, is livid that this has happened uh, just before an election. It comes uh, short not long after the Soviets uh, had invaded Hungary uh, and so he pulled support and threatens to withdraw uh, American economics and financial support for those economies. So, yeah, D Dylan uh, is a, effectively a stooge uh, at, at that moment, and he learns an important lesson from it. Well, one of the things that I find remarkable, too, is that neither the president nor the secretary of state, John Foster Dulles, seem to have lost any faith in Dylan uh, at that moment. Is there anything that explains that continued confidence uh, in him and, uh, and not just his confidence as ambassador, but eventually they're gonna bring him back to, to Washington for senior uh, level responsibility at the State Department? I think in you know on one level it's that you know an experienced diplomat like John Foster Dulles the secretary of state understands that things happen that mistakes happen in diplomacy that diplomacy is a high stakes game particularly uh, when it uh, involves war uh, and that sometimes you're going to get things wrong um but just as importantly um Dylan uh, had a long term relationship with uh, John Foster Dulles Dulles was friends with Dylan's father. Uh, his earliest political cont uh, contacts had been with Dulles. Uh, and so Dulles really appreciates the kind of the skills that Dylan has, but he's also takes a, a benevolent view of him. And so you're absolutely right. Not long after uh, this moment, uh, Dulles will bring Dylan back to Washington, uh, install him at the State Department and effectively give him control uh, over the economic foreign policy which uh, is the, the mainstay uh, of Eisenhower's uh, foreign policy in that second term, uh, effectively uh, governing or running uh, what we know as the Eisenhower Doctrine. Well, and this was this was a pretty transformational change in American foreign policy. My own scholarship on Eisenhower is focused on the use of political warfare in Eastern Europe, but this economic approach to foreign policy is is one of the signature elements of Eisenhower, but it's not without dissent. And Dylan finds himself in the midst of that of that debate about the appropriate use of economic instruments, of financial instruments in American foreign policy. Could you just sketch for us what those what those competing viewpoints were and how did Dylan navigate that? 
Yeah, because as you know, as well as anybody, Jim, uh, the Treasury Secretaries in the Eisenhower administration, uh, George Humphrey and Robert Anderson, uh, these are people who do not want to spend money uh, on things like development loans. They do not want the Cold War uh, to become a vehicle for massive spending uh, in terms of loaning money. Uh, Dylan, on the other hand, uh, is somebody who becomes an advocate for uh, spending money uh, in uh, what today we would call the global south uh, in order effectively not just for the good of those countries but also as a weapon in fighting the Cold War. That if you want those countries not to go into the orbit uh, of the Soviet Union then you have to help them politically, economically, financially, you have to be able to help their infrastructure. Uh, and so, you know, things like, for example, the Act of Bogota, uh, which um, lays, lays out a massive spending program uh, in Latin America, uh, that's something that Dylan uh, is spearheading uh, within the administration. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard multiple times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist and the author of 21 books. And our guest this week is Richard Aldous, the Eugene Meyer Professor of British, of British History and Culture at Bard College. He's also the author of a new book, The Dillon Era, Douglas Dillon in the Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson administrations. And we're talking with him about that now. So in 1959, there's another one of those moments where Dillon does not get it right, and it involves an invitation to Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev to visit the U.S. Tell us about that. What happened and how did he miss that mark? So um, there was throughout the late 50s, there were constant efforts to try and get the leaders of the four uh, great powers, but particularly uh, Khrushchev and Eisenhower together for a summit meeting. Um, uh, the back and forth on this, um, Eisenhower was always, always said he would only have Khrushchev coming to the United States if Khrushchev made uh, concessions on the future of Berlin. But though the, the message to Khrushchev effectively got um, mangled, uh, and so the, the idea uh, that um, uh, Khrushchev would have to make concessions got lost in translation. So as soon as the invitation went, uh, Khrushchev said, yes, I'd be delighted to come to the United States. Eisenhower is furious. He calls uh, Dylan a Christian herter uh, in reams them out for uh, the way in, in which this um, in which this has been done. But you know, it's it's another example uh, of the complexities uh, of uh, diplomacy and and how things can go wrong so easily uh, on simple things like a message going from the Oval Office to the State Department to the Embassy uh, and then to uh, the, to the relevant uh, to the relevant person. You know, I, I, I'm curious, Richard. Does the 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 whole idea that uh, economic instruments were a tangible part of national security 
Uh, do you have a sense of where that originates in the Eisenhower administration? Is it Ike himself? Is it Dulles? Is it Dillon? Where, where does the impulse to begin using America's economic power uh, uh, for development assistance in the, in the developing world uh, originate? I mean, in, in some ways, of course, they already had a blueprint for this because, you know, post-Second World War, uh, the Marshall Plan had done precisely this uh, in, uh, in Europe, again, as you, uh, as you know. Um, but, you know, I think that in some ways the Suez Crisis is actually quite important uh, in this because when the United States uh, effectively comes down on the side of Egypt, it electrifies uh, what then they called the Third world. Um, and the Eisenhower administration realises there's an opportunity here, that there's a certain amount of goodwill, and that if we can build on that, uh, then we might be able to tip the Cold War uh, in our direction. Uh, so, you know, that's where the kind of the thinking comes. And, and it is Dulles uh, who recognises that this is a way to do things. But he also, in a way that I think shows what a, 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 an magnificent Secretary of State he was, he recognises that he's not the right man to do it. And that's one of the reasons why he brings Dylan in, because he thinks that Dylan has the kind of economic and financial expertise, the trust of Wall Street, and understands the kind of global economic infrastructure. That So he thinks that he's the right person to do it. Well, you know, so th th there's so much that we're going to have to, in the interest of time, skip over from just the Eisenhower years. But what's really interesting to me is that you get to the end of uh, the campaign of, of 1960 uh, and President-elect John Kennedy uh, is interested in bringing Dillon into his administration, crossing party lines as Secretary of the Treasury. Um, there's a lot of questions there that I want to unpack, but let's start with what attracted Kennedy to Dillon as a candidate for that role? And I think it's worth saying as well that it's not just an attraction to Kennedy, that it was, it's almost certain that uh, if Nixon had won that election, uh, that Dillon probably would have been Secretary of State uh, in that administration. But Kennedy had seen, uh, had seen Dillon uh, in action when uh, Kennedy was on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Um, so things like uh, the um, Act of Bogota, the Inter-American Inter Development Bank, these kind of things uh, had gone through the Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee uh, in order to get the funding. And they'd, the so the two men had actually worked together. They also shared a kind of a certain kind of background that um, their fathers um, uh, were kind of very similar in, in being self-made uh, multi-millionaires in today's uh, money, billionaires. Um, so they shared that kind of background. They were both Harvard men, but they both also had a kind of a sensibility um, that uh, we use that at the time would have kind of been described as civilized. That you know they were they were kind of people who had a sense of humour, uh, who were not necessarily tribal by nature. So there was a kind of a there was a, a sense of meeting of mind. But the thing that Kennedy wanted most of all was that sense of bringing Dylan in a Republican to an administration that had won an election on a very narrow majority and understanding that Dylan would reassure Wall Street, he would reassure the markets, he would reassure glo the kind of global uh, economic figures. Uh, and so it was really that that, that, uh, that Kennedy wanted 
uh, to bring on board. Kennedy also believed in balance. So he appointed Dillon as his Treasury Secretary um, uh, on, from the right, but then appointed Walter Heller uh, as his chairman of, of uh, the Council of Economic Advisers from the left. So always this kind of sense of balancing the arguments out, of course, leaving him then uh, as the uh, decision maker. So here you have a man who has been in a Republican administration. Now he's in a Democratic administration. So he's served with, with presidents of both parties. Did he pay any price for being by either party for being part of the other's administration? I think that there was initially a resentment um, within the Republican Party. Eisenhower tried to persuade Dillon uh, not, to, not to take the job. Um, Christian Herter, who was Secretary of State um, at the end of the Eisenhower administration, uh, took it very personally uh, when, uh, when Dillon took the, the job uh, as Treasury Secretary. Interestingly, uh, Robert Anderson, Eisenhower's uh, Treasury Secretary, said, you have to take this job for the, uh, for the American interest. On the other side, there were some Democrats. Uh, Al Gore, uh, senior, um, uh, was um, uh, very... Um, critical of Dylan, but it, it, Dylan swung people round. Arthur Schlesinger, who I've worked on before, uh, and is is actually one of the reasons that I came to Dylan in the first place because uh, I was intrigued by why Dylan had actively campaigned uh, to keep Dylan out of that uh, job, and yet within a year. Uh, he was describing himself as uh, Dylan's greatest fan. So I think that because of his sense of loyalty, the way in which he did the job, uh, he very quickly won over uh, the administration. And it's, it's noticeable uh, that Bobby Kennedy, uh, the president's brother, uh, said that, uh, that um, uh, Dylan was one of the absolute closest advisors uh, that the president uh, had and that he relied on him uh, as much as anybody within his cabinet. So very quick question. When he voted, did he vote as a registered Republican or Democrat? He never left the Republican Party. Uh, by 1964, of course, after the death of uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, he felt able uh, to uh, vote uh, for uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, because Barry Goldwater uh, was the, uh, the nominee for the Republican Party. Uh, and he thought he felt that that was a reckless choice uh, by his own party. But he never but he, he, he was always a Republican and proudly so. And, and uh, one of the deals that he did with Kennedy when he took the job uh, in uh, 1961 uh, was that the Treasury Secretary, uh, like the Secretary of State, once you got into the election period, uh, was able to effectively go into PERDA uh, and so therefore was to, able to stand above uh, the politics of the day. You know, Richard, again, this is a richly researched and, 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 and exquisitely told history. Um, and we're going to have to skip a lot of it again because of the time, but I want to make sure that we talk about and maybe the two defining moments in the in the in the Kennedy uh, presidency, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the assassination in November of uh, 1963. Uh, in both cases, what struck me was that not just was uh, Dylan uh, part of the XCOM in the Cuban Missile Crisis, part of the president's cabinet in the in the, in the aftermath of the assassination, but he's also managing global uh, economic systems. Uh, and having to think about what is this going to mean for markets. Um, 
Can you talk a little bit about the role of Pat, of, of, of Douglas Dillon in that moment, uh, in those moments where he's thinking about these massive threats to America, uh, to the survival of the Republic in the aftermath of the president's assassination, while he's still responsible for for managing the, 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 the nation's economy and the global economy. Yeah, and it's it's one of the nice things, of course, is that uh, viewers can listen to Douglas Dillon in action because uh, we have the tapes from those XCOM uh, meetings in the in the Cuban Missile Crisis, so they can hear for themselves um, how Dillon responds in the moment. He's a hawk um, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, believes uh, that um, the, that America's nuclear superiority will always stop uh, Russia. Uh, from the Soviet Union, from taking that ultimate step. But you're right, this is one of the um, those moments that we were talking about before where Dylan's role is underappreciated, that the when he came into the Treasury, uh, he was shocked by the lack of planning uh, for emergency, for, for a crisis. Uh, and so he put in place uh, a number of protocols, not just within the United States, but globally, working with other central banks like the uh, like the Bank of England, for example, putting together the gold pool that would always mean that at a moment of crisis, uh, these countries could work together and coordinate their efforts. And the proof of the pudding uh, there was that when it came to something like the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, the system held. Uh, that there wasn't a global financial meltdown uh, or an American uh, financial meltdown. The procedures that he'd put in place worked. Uh, the same thing happened uh, during uh, after the assassination. And it's, it's also a good example um, of where uh, Dylan, uh, as an insider... Uh, is able to kind of play the system to the advantage of the United States. Uh, he had been a long-term friend, school friends, uh, with the Rockefellers. Um, and so he was able uh, to persuade uh, Nelson Rockefeller, the governor of New York, uh, to uh, close the markets, um, not just uh, immediately after the assassination, but including the following Monday when the funeral of the uh, of the dead president took uh, took place, thereby giving just that little bit more time for everything to calm down. So that when the markets reopened, uh, there was a sense of calmness and control uh, within the system. So we only have about a minute, <coughs> excuse me, left. Uh, so, but very quickly, this is a work of history, but it speaks to today. Can you just briefly tell us how this relates to today when partisan politics have this country so bitterly divided? Well, I think that uh, this this period that we've been looking at was an age of equipoise. In some ways, uh, one of the last ages of equipoise where there was real balance within uh, politics. And, you know, uh, there's, there's, there's good and bad that kind of came out of that. But this kind of sense of putting uh, the, the national interest above sexual interest is also a kind of conservatism um, that perhaps has gone out of fashion uh, today. And it's reflected not just in Dylan's uh, politics, but also in his personality, that uh, this, this kind of personality that doesn't push himself forward, uh, that uh, sees uh, working across party lines uh, as something that is important is implicit in that conservative vision where the past 
the present and the future uh, have to work uh, together. So I think that, you know, there is something to be learned uh, from looking back at that. Uh, as I say, this is, this is not a period uh, without its faults, but it is definitely something uh, where we can look back to a time when politics and conservatism uh, was done uh, differently. Uh, Richard, uh, the book is The Dylan Era. It's outstanding. Uh, Richard Aldous, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. That is Story in the Public Square this week. If you want to know more, you can catch us on social media or visit pellcenter.org where you can always catch up on previous episodes. He's Wayne. I'm Jim. Asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square. <laughs>